but there's no one perfect in this universe. And though you think I'm weird, don't try and change me, dear. 'Cause if you want me, you'll take me for what I'm worth. Good morning, and welcome to episode 489 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Hello. Hello. Brad Penny, almost back. He's promoted from single A to triple A, even though he went 0-2 with a 5 ERA and single his two single A starts and struck out four batters and... Ten and two thirds, but he is—he's close because he's approaching his opt-out date with the Marlins. So they brought him up to evaluate him to decide whether he is worthy of promotion. Huh? I see now that Brad Penny has a Japanese stats page. <laughs> what's what's on it? Uh, he pitched in Japan in 2012 uh, and made only one start. He flew all that way for one start. <laughs> Uh, that one start went very poorly. He gave up six runs. He walked three batters in three innings with one strikeout. Uh, he faced 19 batters and retired about half of them. Uh, and uh, left with a 10.8 ERA. He also... Uh, that's it. That's it. That's the whole story about him in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if, if he decided this sucks. Or if they decided this sucks. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was just a mutual. They cut. sort of he came to cut. the. Ah, wow. Rele- released after one start. Okay. I wonder what he got paid for that. Probably pretty well. Are... Pretty penny? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I wouldn't say. But uh, our NPB contracts I, are guaranteed, right? Yes. I assume. No, you, you said yes. Before you said you wouldn't say it, you said yes. I hadn't so processed would, it yet. You yeah. would say. You should be ashamed of yourself, Ben. <laughs> to make a horrible pun like that, you should be horrified at yourself. I'm sorry. I apologize to everyone. Oh, uh, granting Penny's request to be released. Ah, okay. Penny reportedly had a hard time adjusting to living and playing in Japan. Uh, I'm shocked. Brad Penny? You'd think that guy seems like he'd fit right in. <laughs> stereotype. Uh, but a stereotype about who? Who was I stereotyping? <laughs> I don't know. If I said it would reveal my own stereotype. Let me, let me, okay, let me ask you this, Ben. Which player do you think would fit in worst in Japan? Mm-hmm. Who would have the hardest time adjusting to living and playing in Japan? Ah, that is a good question. Thinking of... Of players with just big personalities, like uh, Nick Swisher. But I don't uh, know. He's so I, happy. No, he's no, so Nick Swisher. Happy-go-lucky, though. He gets along right. with everyone. He kind of he probably is, doesn't care where he is. He is almost, he is like, he is essentially um, like Suyoshi Shinjo, except he's he's American. But, mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's up for anything. He's fun. And, I mean, he's, I don't know if he is really, but that's the impression he he gives off, and uh, so yeah, I think he'd be just fine. I bet he would be like he would be on game shows over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he'd be doing advertisements for sport drinks uh, aimed at children. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would probably have he would do some sort of stunt where he was trapped in a vending machine. I would say 
Mm-hmm. So um, I, think I think he'd be just fine. Luke Scott? Luke Scott's in Taiwan, though. So oh. we, we know that we know huh. that one that one can't work because he's actually in Taiwan. Yeah, might be in Korea. I think he's in Korea. Yeah, do you have Do you have someone in mind? Puig. Uh, <laughs> Puig maybe, but I feel like Puig would would get the respect uh, if you're if you're good enough, you get the respect of any people. Uh huh. So I think that Puig would fit in just fine. I think they would uh, they would they would find him amusing because he's really good. Now, if he weren't really good, then it wouldn't work. But he is really good, so I don't think Puig would have an issue. I'm thinking um, uh, John Lackey seems to me a guy who wouldn't particularly like it and who wouldn't necessarily be particularly liked. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm guessing. I just I, I have a hard time hasn't even been, imagining. Has it been all that well liked here at times? Right, that's true. I have a hard time imagining him uh, eating noodles. Like I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm sort of going through each roster and going, mm-hmm. can I picture him with noodles? <laughs> um, and I just can't see Lackey with noodles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Someone who, someone who likes hunting a lot. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, so all of them. <laughs> yeah. Right. The entire league cannot play. Could not play in Japan. Okay. Uh-huh. Anything Luke else? Scott, Luke Scott, 267, 392, 505 in Korea. Six homers in 33 games. Mm, okay. It's okay. He's not... Yeah, he's not, not great. No, not great. Just okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you'd like to discuss? Um, no. Okay. By the way, our uh, listener, Rich, who created the Sad UCL site, saducl.co, that counts, tracks the days since last UCL injury, informed me that unless he missed someone, it had been 20 days uh, since the last UCL injury prior to Bronson Arroyo's, which was a record since he started tracking it. So another well, reason to be sad about Bronson Arroyo's injury. Although maybe, yeah. maybe Tanaka will be the next guy. Hopefully not. This just goes to, to show what I was talking about yesterday. These records, we hardly even notice records anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm glad he brought it up. But it's sad that we weren't paying more attention. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, someone, someone in the Facebook group accused you of saying Eddie Murphy when you met Eddie Murray. How do you respond to this accusation? That I said Eddie Murray. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to go back and check check the tape. It would be understand be understandable if you did. I, I made that mistake in my head, sort of, just because I was also sort of trying to speculate in the in the Facebook group about whether there had ever been a pairing of superstars in sports and entertainment at the same time whose names and primes overlapped as closely as Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murray. Because they, <laughs> they they both peaked at almost exactly well, the same time. Yeah, Ava Ava yes, Ava right. Longoria and Evan Longoria, right? Yes, that was the the first example that someone mentioned. Someone also suggested the Michael Jackson slash Michael Jordan slash uh, Michael Johnson Mike pairing. Jackson. Oh, Michael Johnson. Yeah, um, which is oh, a good one. I'll- 
I love the. Uh, I love the what. What is this? Is this Kings of Leon? Uh, uh, not Kings. Of, uh, my morning jacket. Is this my morning jacket? The intro on song the yesterday. yesterday? Show? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good song. <laughs> it's a good good choice. Thank you. I'm going. I'm in case you're not. In case you can't tell, I'm oh, you're, going you're to checking go listen to see if you while said you're it talking. <laughs> I'm going to go listen. Yeah. Imagine that might make it difficult to pay attention to what I'm saying, but that's okay. Uh, so yeah, you listen. Usually, never. <laughs> Listener Greg Gabrielson tried to pinpoint when their primes were, the Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murray primes, and he singled out 1984 as Murray's prime. It was his best season by Baseball Reference War, and he he says that Murphy peaked in 1984, 1985, which was when Party All the Time came out. So that's that's debatable, but clearly their their primes closely overlapped. So understandable and mistake Evan if you did make Eva, it. Eva, yeah, Eva and, and, and Evan, uh, not, neither, I mean, Evan Longoria, you may be someday, he, he may, he, he's maybe comparable to Eddie Murphy. Yeah. But, Eddie Murray, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Eva Longoria is, did Could I call her Ava <laughs> um, before? I guess we have to go back and listen to that too. I don't know. But, but yeah, clearly she, she did not attain the cultural importance that Eddie Murphy did. Right, very few have. I mean, really, if you start with that, there's there's probably there's probably not thirty entertainers who've had the mm-hmm. impact since Eddie Murphy of Eddie Murphy. So yeah, you're already not. down to to the Michael Jacksons and the. Uh, what about Prince and uh, and Prince Fielder? No, yeah. not overlapping. Not overlapping. Way. No, I mean Prince Prince has some cultural cachet now, certainly, but but not his most productive period. Madonna and Maradona. Maradona. Mm, that's a good one. I don't know when Maradona's prime was. <laughs> um, like 88, I think, uh, or 86, I think, is Hand of God. Hmm, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Beverly Hills Cop 4 coming in 2016. Eddie Murphy's going to make a comeback. All right, my topic today. I'm, well, listening to you. I'm now listening to you, by the way, talk. <laughs> while I'm talking? <laughs> this is the weirdest thing. <laughs> People should try listening to multiple Effectively Wild episodes simultaneously. I know people listen to us. Some people listen to us at at one and a half speed, just to just to get it over with more quickly. I guess. So uh, yeah. I want to talk about a. I watched the Sopranos. I watched the entire Sopranos in one and a half speed. Really? Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. So Billy Bean wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal a couple days ago, and it was called Billy Bean on the Future of Sports and How Technology Will Transform Sports, and and it was mostly nothing that was new to us or would be new to, to most of our listeners. It was, you know, he he talked about StatCast, the new tracking system coming from, from Major League Baseball, Advanced Media. He he called it the tip of the iceberg, which I don't know. I don't know that I would say it's the tip. I would say it's a more substantial portion of the iceberg. Maybe it's the tip of the spear. Maybe that's what he was going for. But um, he he talked about how you know the the distinctions between outsider and insider are shrinking as as people on the internet get more access to data and do useful things with it and go from being outsiders to insiders and. And he talked about 
how technology will create a, a shift in front offices where really the shift that has already been going on is very much happening and has been happening for decades now, really. So that that was not new so much. But there was one interesting part I thought that I wanted to talk about, and it relates to a listener email that I wanted to answer yesterday but didn't have a chance to. So Billy Bean makes the case in this op-ed, and I will I'll link to it in the Facebook group and in the, the blog post at BP. He makes the case that StatCast is going to change player evaluation to such a degree that players who might not have had a chance to to make the majors before now might have that chance to make the majors. So he, he says it could really be a, a significant change, um, not just in, in evaluating the players who are already there, but in determining which players deserve to be there. And so I will quote from this paragraph uh, with the, the sub, the header leveling the field. He says, Having advanced performance data at even the most junior levels will make it less likely... Oh, and, and he he starts with the premise that, that StatCast or some equivalent to StatCast will eventually filter down to every level, which I, I think makes perfect sense. We've, we've talked about that before when we talked about whether, whether scouting was... Uh, whether scouts were an endangered species because this motion tracking stuff is eventually going to be everywhere. He seems to think that that the latter at least is the case, that this is going to filter down to the minors, filter down to, to amateur level, filter down to the little league eventually. And so he says, having advanced performance data at even the most junior levels will make it less likely that players get filtered out based on 60-yard dash times or radar, gar- radar gun readings, and more likely that they advance on the merits of practiced skills, the ability to paint the corners of the strike zone, to swing only at pitches within that zone, and to manage the subtle footwork required of a difficult fielding play is accessible to any player willing to commit to the 10,000 hours rule. The average amount of practice Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers says is needed to excel in selected fields. A whole new class of players whose skill sets previously were not fully appreciated will be able to reach the highest levels thanks to a more nuanced understanding of their skills. So I want to talk about whether... Whether you buy this, whether you think this is the case, and and if so, what what sort of players those might be, what class of players it is that has not that has not made it to the majors to this point, and scouting and and player promotions are generally considered to be, I think, a, a fairly efficient meritocracy, and yet Billy Bean is suggesting that uh, to use the Billy Bean buzzword, there is some inefficiency here, that there is some some class of player that is being ignored or underappreciated. And I wanted to tie this to a question that we got from Matt Dickinson with the subject line, can anyone play baseball? And Matt asks, uh, when I see players drafted based on name recognition alone, recently Johnny Menzel, Mariano Rivera Jr., it makes me wonder if teams at their core believe that pretty much anybody can be trained to play baseball at a professional level. A small part of me agrees with this. If you take a young adult who is in above-average physical condition and give them the very best coaching in the world along with access to premier physical conditioning, nutrition, and equipment, why should we not expect that they could become a professional ball player? The closest example that I can remember of a team actually testing this idea is the million-dollar arm kids from India, but that is a small sample. But there are several examples of pros that never really played the sport in their youth. 
The contradiction to this thought is that teams continue to spend massive amounts of money on their first-round draft picks. Because of the money they paid him, Mark Appel will receive the most focus by the Astros' training staff regardless of his recent struggles. How much riskier would it have been for the Astros to instead distribute the $6.35 million to 25, 50, or even 100 complete unknown players and see which prosper? So the, the premise of Matt Dickinson's question about how teams draft you know, Johnny Menzel or Mariano Rivera Jr., and Mariano Rivera Jr. might be a, a legitimate draftee. I, I remember reading something about how he had some promise as a player, and, and you've looked at, at how often players' offspring get drafted, and it, it happens a lot, and sometimes it's just a favor in the later rounds, but often often it's because there's some talent there and because those players have been have been at their professional baseball player father's knee since infancy and have been around clubhouses and have been playing their whole lives and been getting the best instruction. And so it makes sense that they would not only have pretty decent genes, but also the preparation that would lead them to become a, a good player. The Johnny Menzel case, and I think the Padres drafted him, that's obviously just a, a stunt. Um, they don't expect him to play or even expect that he could play, but teams have evidently had some success with this tactic. Jeff Young wrote about this when the Padres drafted Johnny Menzel, and he pointed out that the, the Rangers did this with Russell Wilson, and then immediately after drafting him, they started printing up Russell Wilson Rangers jerseys. So this is a, a thing that you can do. You can just draft some famous person, some famous amateur from another sport, and then you can have a jersey with with his name on your your team's jersey and then you can sell some of those and maybe you can maybe you can make some money and it's probably more than you'll make out of you know whatever other 32nd round draft pick you would have taken in his spot but but Matt's question about whether anyone can be a a player you know anyone in reasonably good condition given the best coaching and all the other advantages that one could give a player sort of dovetails with what Billy Bean seems to be saying here, that that maybe there are practiced skills that could get a player to the majors and that these have been neglected because uh, scouts have been overly focused on actual physical tools as opposed to to practice and the benefits of practice. Are you Are you buying this? Well, Ben, in answer to your question, I definitely did say Eddie Murphy. <laughs> it's it's clear as day. I said Eddie Murphy at least uh-huh. the first time. Uh-huh. For that reason, I didn't hear much else that you said. <laughs> uh, I I did. I know. I I heard the last few minutes. Uh, there were. I I heard everything after you stopped reading the Billy Bean uh, oh. article because I had also read the Billy Bean ah. article. So okay, good. I didn't particularly need to hear that block quote. But mm-hmm. you asked about seventy five questions. And so I don't know which one you want me to answer at this point. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I did say I actually thought about talking about that Billy Bean article yesterday when I thought that I had to come up with a topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the, the same part of the article that yeah, stuck out at me. That was because I, the only I thought, original part. I mean, you know, to, yeah, to hey, people look, who read about baseball all day. Quick, yeah, quick, quick tangential question. Why did he write that, do you suppose? Like, what do yeah. you think was the audience for that? Didn't it almost feel like... Like, I don't know, like maybe Major League Baseball advanced media arranged it or something. And he was just supposed to be the famous guy who was promoting their new product, maybe? Could be. Could be. It was um, a weird. It, it was sort of weirdly timed to, to nothing. And like, like why is he? Mm-hmm. Why did he write it? Why is he writing op-eds? Who was it for? It was fairly generic. 
it it yeah. wasn't sure it wasn't clear what he i mean it was fine it was there's was nothing wrong with it it was uh, many 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 people many readers of the wall street journal learned something from that and mm-hmm. and and bless his heart but i couldn't figure out what the audience was or more than that what the purpose was so I, if you do you know do you have i don't know my my only other theory is that he's just sort of trying to position the the a's as uh, a team that you know people reading the wall street journal maybe people who are working in business and have the sort of skills that would be useful for baseball analysis and and maybe they they harbor some ambition of making that transition from business to sports and they pick up the paper and they see that Billy Bean the GM of the A's wrote something about how how front offices are going to need to hire lots of people who are not former players to take advantage of this new data and maybe he hopes to to be the one who gets the resumes from those people. Jeez, I guess, but I mean, the guy wrote Moneyball for Pete's sake. <laughs> right. <It's> the... <laughs> yeah, you'd think that would do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it does seem, it, it kind of came out of nowhere, but I, I don't know. And All right. It, so, yeah. uh, so I thought that that part, though, the part that we're talking about, was unconvincing. Uh-huh. Um, I don't believe that the problem with scouts is that they're incapable of assessing skills i think that scouts aren't as interested in skills or they are interested in it but to the extent that they're able to put it in perspective i mean when you're looking at a 15 year old um the the route that he takes to the ball is interesting but it's not nearly the most important thing about him um because his skills are not anywhere close to major league ready, and they never will be unless he has the physicality to perform. I mean, these guys are elite athletes. They are huge, strong people, mm-hmm. capable of doing things that most people cannot do, no matter how many you know how much you train them. And the fact that um, that that a player can, uh, you know, a person who practices real hard or has some natural intuition for a certain part of the game uh, might be able to. Um, you know what i don't know take bigger leads and get back to the bag or you know throw you know have command of his pitches or whatever is interesting but for a 15 16 17 year old it's not that interesting i mean that's basically like you might as well look and see whether his stats are really good mm-hmm. and there's a reason that stats for 15 and 16 and 17 year olds aren't that interesting they're not playing against major leaguers and the skills that can make you stand out there are certain skills that don't that don't go up the ladder as well, mm-hmm. and we you know we all know the experience of seeing the pitcher who has command and a, and a changeup who can absolutely dominate in rookie ball in short season ball a little bit in low A not as much in high A he's a reliever in double A he's got a five point five ERA in triple A and he's terrible in the majors and it's mm-hmm. the same pitcher all the way up the line but those skills don't play up as much um, and I think scouts are pretty good at putting those skills um, in perspective. So mm-hmm. I, I was having a hard time imagining the kid who's going to be so attractive because you have his, you know, inch by inch readings that wouldn't otherwise be notable. Um, and I, I couldn't really think of it. I mean, the only way that kid wouldn't already be being recognized is if he doesn't have the body to be a major leaguer. And mm-hmm. he's still not going to have the body to be a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, the example he he gives of being able to to paint the corners by practice. I mean, assuming that's the case, assuming you could 
you could refine your control to to that degree that you could reliably hit the corners. Um, you still need to be able to hit the corners at you know ninety miles an hour or something. It's not like uh, it's not like if you throw seventy five and you practice enough that you can actually put it on the black that you can make the majors with that skill. So it, I, and it's, it's also not like scouts aren't able to tell that you're hitting the corners. They, uh now it's conceivable, I guess that scouts would never bother to watch you, that they would see you throw, you know, 77 in your warmups and then they, you know, turn their back to you in a subtle act of protest, uh, or they would just leave, uh, without ever seeing how well you paint the corners. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe if there was like maybe if every player from age 14 on up uh, was being constantly measured by uh, 37 cameras and Doppler technology, uh, that we would have all that data in a spreadsheet and you just sort and you'd go, oh, well, this guy at the top, we've never looked at him. And then you could go look at him and maybe that would be worth it. But um, I don't know. I have a very hard time believing that there's this class of players out there. Uh, that is not getting, um, you know, picked up by Major League Baseball's nets. I mean, I think there are probably undervalued skills. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, like I I always think about Joe Posnanski's idea that the Royals, when they were really bad, should have, like, only signed right-handed pitchers under 5'11 or something like that. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because they're, you know, why not? You know, might as well try something crazy. It probably wouldn't work, but nothing they were doing was going to work. And so, yeah, maybe, I mean, you might might plausibly make the case that there are some 5'10 right-handed pitchers who are getting overlooked, but not a lot of them. I mean, some 5'10 right-handers do get to the majors, and they pitch really well. They do that because they throw hard, have an idea what they're doing, uh, 30 scouts probably went out and looked at him. Some of them showed interest. Somebody signed him, spent six years developing him, and because his performance at each level was good enough to merit a promotion to the next, he eventually reached the top of the game. That's how it works, and mm-hmm. I imagine it works pretty well. Yeah, and it's not like you can out-practice the, the naturally skilled players either because the players who make the majors are not only naturally skilled but they they have put their 10,000 hours in or whatever the the number of hours in i i read uh i read the david epstein book the sports gene recently um it was it was really interesting and the stuff about the 10,000 hours rule makes you kind of question it i mean it 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 might be something like that on average but for some people it's 4000 hours for other people it's 20000 hours so it's it's not really a anything close to a hard and fast rule but um the the players who who make the majors started out maybe with with the the natural skills necessary to make it but they they also put in an extraordinary amount of time so it's not as if uh someone could just really outwork someone who who makes the majors people players who make the majors worked really hard to get there no matter what their natural skills were Um, i met somebody the other day who played against uh david wright growing up and and also ryan zimmerman and um was like uh you know did some showcases and was in the travel ball circle with them and um said that david wright basically had no friends like everybody thought he was a weirdo and he was totally antisocial because all he would do is just go home and take batting practice. Like that's right. all he did all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so 
It's yeah, it's tough to outwork people who are are wired that way. And of course, the that's a partially a genetic component too. Whether you're willing to put those hours in is something that is to some extent hardwired. Um, by the way, that that chapter about that in the sports gene is excerpted and available online at SI. If you search why MLB hitters can't hit Jenny Finch, you can find it there. So, so wait, wait, mm-hmm. I want to make one. Can I make one? Yeah. I, I would like to argue the counter now. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned the, um, the thing I wrote not that long ago about baseball offspring. And mm-hmm. for most people who are listening who didn't read it, I'm looking at the numbers and yes, none of you read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hate you all. Um, it's depressing when you look at the the traffic numbers on an article that you wrote and you realize that it's a lot less than the number of people who listen to this podcast. It's almost a, a it's almost a betrayal. Why are you guys not reading everything we write? That's the thing that we like. We we this <laughs> this is the reason that we much do, we're much we better at that. Yes, we do the <laughs> podcast so that we can subsidize the writing and you got yeah. it all backwards. Anyway, uh, what I found. Uh, as you'll recall, Ben, is that if you are a major league ball player, you have a one in four chance of having a child who is drafted, which is incredible. Like, isn't <laughs> yeah. that incredible? Mm-hmm. A one in four chance of right. having a kid who is drafted. And, and that's, uh, that's not even if you have a son, right? That's just. Just if. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You might not have any children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, yeah, you might not have a son. Um, and. Uh, this is not, uh, these are not uh, all stars. These are like all players that I sampled, 120 players that I sampled, uh, spread across the baseball population of like the 1978 season. And uh, one in four of them had a kid who got drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so then we broke those into different categories because, as you mentioned, some of these are nepotism picks. And, um, and so I wanted to basically try to filter those guys out and you have a one in what I think like a one in 13 chance of having uh, one of your kids be a major leaguer, which seems to me to be clearly not a nepotism pick. If you make it to the majors, uh, you earned it, right? Nobody mm-hmm. makes it to the majors as a nepotism favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Anybody? Pete Rose Jr. Did Pete Rose Jr. Right. Um, that's the one I was just Googling. I, he he did, right? Didn't he make... Uh, let me see. Um, yeah, he made it for uh, 11 games and 16 plate appearances with the Reds. Yeah. That, that could be one. That's a pretty compelling case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let me but... see. What did, what did he hit that year? He was 1997... And before he was called up, let's see, he was playing in Double A mostly. He had a 9.05 OPS in Double A that year, and he was a <clears throat> he was a third baseman. So I don't know, but yeah, probably 27. 27 right, he was in 27. AA. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a good example. Uh, anyway, though, the the point is that. Um... Uh, I was, you know, I was trying to filter out the nepotism picks and that was one of the ways I did it. But, uh, one of the guys who made it to the majors, uh, was, um, Dusty Wathen, mm. who, uh, who wasn't even drafted. Um, and he made it to the majors and to be undrafted and make it to the majors is already, you know, that's a long shot. And so my guess is that Dusty Wathen probably was signed as a nepotism pick. Like my guess is that 
well, I don't know. Uh, my guess when when thinking about this at the time was that he probably was signed that he got some contract to you know play on some team's short season club as a favor to his dad or because it, maybe not as a favor to his dad but because you know they recognize the name that's the other thing these aren't nepotism picks necessarily they're um they're either favors or you recognize the name you know he's got good bloodlines that was the point of the article actually it was the value of bloodlines uh not the ne- nepotism thing was hardly even a, why am i i keep talking about the nepotism thing but it was hardly mentioned in the article it was not the point <laughs> of the article anyway dusty wathen my suspicion is that if dusty wathen's dad weren't a big leaguer, he never would have been signed. That's just my guess. And um, his name did get him signed, my guess is, and he did make it to the majors. And so that goes to the point that Bean is making, basically, which is that getting your foot in the door, there are certain biases that determine who gets their foot in the door. And some of the guys who get their foot in the door um, end up surprising everybody and can, you know, uh, upending all of our expectations and making it to the majors regardless. So if Bean's point is that there are some guys out there, you know, a handful of guys out there who don't get noticed, who would get noticed if they excelled in some aspect of the game that is more easily measured than observed uh, Mm -hmm. by scouts. Um, And of those, you know, handful of guys, you know, uh, an even smaller handful might you know, develop under the tutelage of big league coaches and nutritionists and strength trainers and um, pro baseball aspirations and um, and paychecks uh, could develop into something. And so mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't that seems reasonable. It does. It, I guess I, I would say it seems reasonable that some players, a very small number, a very, very small number um, uh, that, that, you know, that you could imagine that there's some all star in the year 2042, who owes his career uh, to, you know, uh, Major League Baseball advanced media, but not not sport changing by by any means is what I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, and you'd, you'd have to devote a lot of extra resources to those players. I mean, Matt's question about why the the Astros could have didn't just give that six million they gave to Appel to a hundred unknowns. Um, you know, maybe they would have gotten a good player out of those hundred unknowns, but they would have had to somehow have four more farm teams also just to just to play those unknowns and then coaches for them and and food for them and transportation for them. And the the less less baseball background a guy has when you draft him, presumably the more time and money and effort you have to pour into turning him into a polished baseball player. So that's something to consider also. Um, just generally, I mean, I would, my my guess about the StatCast stuff at the major league level is that, I mean, I'd be surprised, not shocked, but surprised if it completely changed our evaluation of, of players, even of a, a small group of players. I mean, my... My guess is that uh, it will refine our understanding of players, and and I'm just just assuming that we actually get access to everything and we get to see anything, or or the people who do. I I would guess that you know even with something like defense, which is usually cited as the area in which it could help the most, it seems to me like what we have now is probably directionally correct that. Uh, that this will allow us to have much greater precision and much less uncertainty. 
so that we can come to conclusions in in smaller sample sizes. But I would I would guess that it wouldn't completely change that many evaluations of players because even if you even if you compare like the the evaluations of really dumb defensive systems the ones that are not say based on on you know batted ball charting or anything they're just they're just based on you know the pitcher and the batter and maybe the maybe you know certain guys ground ball rates or something but it's not it's not actually based on video scouting and charting where every ball went and and turning the field into zones those you know like something like total zone i think correlates pretty well with something like uzr or drs over a large enough sample and i would expect it to be the same sort of thing you know the the zone systems are more more accurate more precise they give you the answer in a smaller sample than something that is not based on on that methodology and statcast would work much the same way that we would just have smaller error bars on our evaluations that we come to the numbers more quickly, but that they wouldn't necessarily be, you know, a negative instead of a positive in all that many cases. Well, Ben, I don't know that I agree with that. I wouldn't rule anything out, and I'm not sure I agree with that at the major league level. But my my big my bigger point is that um, that it's not that useful in changing that that at, at the major league level. I think it could tell us a lot about the interaction of these players. At the non-major league level, the further away from it you get, uh, the less it matters. Um, I mean, it's such a different sport that performance and results matter much, much less the further you get away. And at a certain point, it's just such a different game that it's like having the world's best uh, bowling assessment technology so that you can really measure how good all these guys are at bowling before you draft them for your baseball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just how they bowl isn't all that important, and to a certain degree, how they play baseball in high school uh, isn't all that important either. I mean, it's important, but not all that important, mm-hmm. as you can see by, um, you know, the original question uh, mm-hmm. that you know was asked about athleticism and whether anybody can play baseball. So, um, anyway, even even pitch FX it somewhat, but pitch FX has changed our evaluation of I would say of catchers. Maybe even more than pitchers, right? Because we had we had no equivalent for for you know catcher framing stats prior to PitchFX. We just didn't know that it was that valuable. We didn't know which guys were good at it and what it could be worth. And the fact that it could turn a catcher who didn't look like a good player because he didn't hit very well into a valuable player because he framed very well. With pitchers, that's not really the case, right? Like we've learned a ton about pitchers and pitching. From PitchFX, but is there a pitcher who we now know is good because of PitchFX who we wouldn't have known was good before? It doesn't seem like there is really. I mean, you know, a pitcher who who doesn't allow runs and strikes guys out is is a good pitcher. Everyone always knew he was a good pitcher. Now we can we can tell more quickly, maybe, now that a guy is a good pitcher or has the potential to be because of what he throws. But uh there aren't really a lot of guys who it completely changed our evaluation of, at least that are coming to my mind right now. But I hope I hope it does completely change our minds about certain players. It would be more interesting. Good point. Um, okay. And by the way, I figured out why that Billy Bean op-ed was in the Wall Street Journal. It was part of a series on, uh, it was called Journal Reports, colon, Leadership. So they had a bunch of 
of thought leaders in various fields write about the future of whatever their field was. So Taylor, Taylor Swift wrote about the future of music on the same day <laughs> that Billy Bean wrote about the future of sports. Huh. Tomorrow's so topic. <laughs> yes. Okay. Did all she right. say it was all going to be like Smash Mouth? I haven't read it yet. I hope so. All right. So that is it for today. Please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com. Subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. I enjoyed talking to you about baseball today. Me? Yes, you. Not the listeners. I mean, yes, them too. I wasn't talking directly to them. Okay. All right. Bye. We'll be back tomorrow. I mean, when I was a kid, I just remember there being records broken every year. There were like eight to ten records that we paid attention to every year. You know, like the guy who had, I remember Eddie Murphy breaking the home runs, uh, sorry, uh, most times hitting home runs from both sides of the plate in one game record. That was a, <laughs> that was a record we paid attention to, man.